You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Sacred, the Wonder of God's World. In this series, we'll learn to see the goodness of God's world as men and women who have received the opportunity to become life-giving people, creatively fulfilling the mission given to us by God. Morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. Good to be with you. My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Our mission at Sojourn is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus, build them up as his church, and send them to follow him in his world. And I'm thankful that you've come to be part of that. Hello to families. Thanks for coming to celebrate these gifts of new life. We've got more babies to celebrate in the next service, and uh, that's always an exciting Sunday. So, yeah, I'm just happy to be with you guys. I'm excited to be with you guys. Um, A couple of quick things. To mention, we have our 10-year anniversary party coming up December 1st. Uh, I've heard rumors, you guys. We got a a party planning committee now. Uh, We're thinking about becoming like a real Baptist church. If you don't know that, for like 20 years, we've been a secret Baptist church, and we might become a real Baptist church here soon, which means committees. Uh, But we have a party planning committee, events planning committee. I've heard about inflatables. I've been promised a magical Christmas party. So what might it mean? Uh, I've heard rumors of karaoke, so I hope you guys can come. December 1st, 6.30 p.m., kids are welcome. It's going to be family-friendly and a lot of fun, I hope, celebrating some of what the Lord has done. Uh, There's one thing that's happy and and bittersweet that we're going to be celebrating that night. Uh, Some of you guys know Pastor Lachlan Coffey. He has been, he's one of Sojourn's founding members. He's been at Sojourn for 21 years, and he's in the process now of transitioning off of our elder team. So he's been an elder for 14 years, I believe. Uh, The way we work, we've got some pastors are paid. We use pastor, elder interchangeably because the Bible does. That's a little Bible joke for you. But some, some of our pastors get paid. Some of our pastors don't get paid. I believe that Lachlan is the longest tenured non-staff elder that Sojourn has ever had, or maybe Dr. Rob Plummer. And if you know Dr. Rob Plummer, it's kind of like you got Jesus and holiness, then maybe Paul, and then Rob Plummer. So we can't fault him for that. But um, And we're going to celebrate Lachlan. We think uh, as a church, we could grow in how we honor people who serve um, and who have served faithfully. So he and Terry are going to be around. They're not going anywhere. Uh, they're at home now with some sickness, so y'all, y'all can pray for them. But um, I hope you can come and we'll celebrate and honor Lachlan, 21 years of ministry at this church, and he's a product of Southern Indiana, so we're really grateful for him. Um, We're nearing the end of our series, Sacred, right now where we've been journeying through Genesis. Uh, In two weeks, we're starting our Advent series. Y'all ready for Christmas? Is it just me? I've been listening. Maybe it's just me. Maybe you're not ready for Christmas. I'm excited about it. We got our Christmas, our Dickens Village Christmas houses up, um, and uh, Advent starting in a couple of weeks. We're doing a series called Rumors of the Messiah. Uh, where we're, we're going to look at these Old Testament promises of the king who would come and try to help us have eyes to see evidence of the grace of God peeking through, uh, even in the darkness, even in times of longing. In January, we're going to be preaching through kind of some family business, where we are as a church. Usually once or twice a year, we talk about where we are as a church and, and how we see things moving forward. And then in February, we're starting a series called Desecrated. So we've kind of tried to set up this picture of who we are in this series called Sacred. Who did God make us to be? What has he called us to do? And in that series, we want to talk about what has sin done to all of this. Uh, Try to broaden our perspective on what sin is and what image bearers of God are to do in light of that. Um, So in this series, for me personally, going through Genesis 1 and 2, and and now we're getting into Genesis 3, uh, it's been inspiring for me personally. It's been reassuring. It's been hopeful 
to be reminded. The Bible starts in Genesis 1 and 2, that there is a goodness in being, the Im- in being image bearers of God, that there's meaningful, significant work for us to do, sacred work. And we've tried to summarize what God wants of us, who he's made us to be with this word generative. We've talked about it throughout the series. And just as by way of recap, we've said that being generative meant three things. It meant creating Genesis moments. Genesis moments are new beginnings that inspire. It means being generous people who give our lives away. And we become generational in our thinking where we build for the next generation. So Genesis moments, generosity, generational thinking. And when I keep that framework in front of me, life feels so exciting. I hope some of you have had just a little bit of a taste of that. And it's not exciting in grandiose ways, which it normally, excitement usually means grandiosity in in my life. Um, But it's becoming more and more simple and ordinary. Just a real simple example. Uh, As the series has been going on, we've begun a fence project at our house. And you, you know you've really settled into solid middle age when you're really pumped about putting a fence on your yard. And the fence is really pretty. The guy building it, and by starting, I just want to be clear, I'm not building the fence. That's not, that's not me. So if you need help, that's, that's not me. I'm writing the checks, as it were. Uh, but what, see, once the fence goes up, then we can dream about where the plants go. And, you know, we can have like an English garden gate with hydrangeas on the side. And maybe one day we'll put a little stone pebble path down. And here we'll have a place to sit. And it's, our imaginations are getting really fired up and excited about making something beautiful here. And it feels holy. It feels godly. We've been really excited about building a fence and everything that it'll do for us. And uh, the first few stages of the work were flattening our yard. Our yard's a mess. It used to be a grocery store. Our house used to be a grocery store. Our house was ordered demolished by the city. And we, so if you don't, whatever, I can talk to you about my house sometime. It was quite the thing. Needs a lot of work is all I'm saying. And so we, we did that. And then the holes for the fence get dug. And when you see the holes get dug, boy, it's coming. It's going to be a fence. It's going to be great. I'm sorry how excited I got about a fence. Uh, and then the wood for the fence got delivered. Have you all seen what's going on with lumber prices in this COVID era? Supply chain, lumber. Uh, so I saw what looked to me like a pile of money get set in my front yard. And what, anyone want to guess what my first thought was when I saw all that wood sit in my yard at 8 o'clock at night? Some, somebody's going to steal that wood. Somebody, all my excitement about building the fence got flipped I called the guy who's up and was like, man, what are you going to do about this wood pile out here? Someone's going to steal my wood. We can't put a chain on. We got to lock it up. And then we basically like, we're going to trust the Lord. And I'm like, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord that these people here are going to come and steal my money. I don't have money to go buy more wood. I'm going to be out. And that, I started spinning. The wood's going to get stolen. We're going to have holes in the ground, but no ability to build the fence. I ain't got the money to go buy more wood. I was afraid. And you know, despite my little Eufy security doorbell on the front, I ain't going to do anything with that, my blurry night vision camera. After my anxiety calmed down a little bit, I just got really sad. How sad it is that we have to worry that people would steal something from our yards. How sad it is that we have to worry about how people will interact with us. Maybe how sad it is that we have to build a fence at all. I don't know. We... Here's some of the tension I live in, and I imagine you live in it too when you slow down enough to think about it. As image bearers of God, we have such a high, beautiful calling. We have lives pregnant with such significance and meaning. Then you ever just look around and say, what is going on? What's wrong with these people? 
People lie and people cheat and people steal. People you try to love weaponize your kindness against you. You say one thing and then you do another. Your plans fall through because you fall through. It's not just those people. Have you noticed that? Have you ever stared in the face of your own hypocrisy, your own inconsistency, your own internal contradictions? This series in Genesis 1 and 2 has felt encouraging and hopeful and all of those things that I've said, but it's also felt very tense to me because it's both beautiful and it feels so far from reality. And maybe the best way for us to begin to understand what's going on, why are these things happening, is to understand what happened. Not just what's going on, but what happened. And I want to take this slow, just a couple of verses from Genesis 3, to understand some of what happened. Verse 1 of chapter 3 begins, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent is clever, skilled in deception. That's the essence of what shrewd means here in Genesis 3. Skilled in deception and clever. Have you you noticed many people who are really good at lying, they don't come to you and let you know that they're lying? I've yet to have a conversation where someone sits down with me and is like, hey, we're going to have a really intense meeting and I'm going to lie to you throughout it, just so you know. Many deceivers don't wave a flag saying they're trying to trick you. They're, They're a lot more subtle. The subtlety of the serpent here comes as he just very, very slightly twists the words of God. So verse 1 continues, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? There's one word that's a real problem there. Does anybody know what word it is? Anyone want to guess? It's in the middle of the second line for you looking at the screen. Any. (laughs) No, that's not what God said. We've looked at this. He didn't say, here's this huge lush garden with uh, who knows how many thousands of trees and fruits and you can't eat any of it. He didn't say that. It's not even close to what he said. We, We looked at this two weeks ago. What I think the serpent is doing here to be some of the cleverness here is he's asking a really ridiculous question of Eve, knowing she'll answer it right, which will make her feel safe. You see what I mean? He's giving her kind of a theological softball that she can knock out of the park and be like, he can't trick me. He He can't fool me. So Eve responds to correct the serpent. But I I can't help but wonder if in her comfort, or maybe if in her own self-confidence, she slips up a little bit at the end. This is what Eve says in verse 3. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. She would have been good if she stopped there. But she continued, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. See, anybody see the problem? Where did she slip up? Touch it. God didn't say touch it. He said, just don't eat it. Watch very closely here. The serpent is not just twisting the words of God. He's not just modifying them. Look at what he says in response to Eve. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. I think he's sensing the room here. He sees that Eve is maybe feeling a little confident, slips up a little bit, and his hook of deception is set. 
And so he can not just twist his words, but twist God's character. In the last several weeks, we've affirmed the abundance of God's creation and the generosity of his posture towards his people. But look now, the the serpent is suggesting that God is withholding, that God is concerned or that God is lying to them. If you remember back to the creation of humans, God said, let us make man in our image to be like us. And now the serpent is saying, God doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't want you to know this thing. God is afraid. And verse 6 tells us that Eve was convinced. So what should she do then if she's convinced of what the serpent is saying? She takes the apple, or it's not an apple, I'm sorry, it's a fruit, and then she eats it. And do you know, does anyone know who else was there that was deceived, that took the fruit and ate it? Anybody know his name? Adam. It's not like Adam was on a weekend trip. It's not like he was out camping with his friends or something like that. Because Satan, the serpent rather, is talking to Eve, and then she eats it, and she's like, hey man, try this. He's like, yeah, it looks pretty good. I just get mad when people are like, oh, Eve was deceived, so you can't trust those women who are easily deceived. It's like, well, what about Mr. Mr. Adam right here? Same thing happened to him. So you can't pull the car that it's just the women that got deceived. Adam was right there with it, getting deceived too. Their eyes are opened. They feel shame and nakedness. They feel fear and hide. They feel guilt and blame. We're not even going to talk about the curse as much as what sin does. This is what happened. The movements of God in the world, we've repeated this throughout Genesis moments, through acts of generosity with the generations in mind. But what are the movements of the serpent? What does the serpent come to try to make happen? See, instead of acts of creativity that inspire, instead of these Genesis moments, he inserts distortions meant to deceive. He distorts something just enough that can lead to significant deceptions. Instead of generosity, helping people believe that they're in a world of abundance. The serpent comes in and makes us feel that it's a world of scarcity meant to instill doubt. Instead of generational thinking, the serpent inserts chaos meant to divide. That could be the simplest way to think about the acts of the serpent compared to the acts of God. Whereas God brings order, the serpent brings chaos. Whereas God brings life, the serpent brings death. Whereas God brings Trinitarian community, we talked about this, diversity, harmony, and unity. The serpent brings self-protection and isolation. As, As God's sacred image bears, as the people of God, we must learn to recognize how much bigger sin is and how much more significant what sin does is we must become a people who recognize the voice of the serpent more clearly than I think we do now. So how do you recognize it? How do you recognize the voice of the serpent or the acts of the serpent? Well, let's look at what's already been said a little bit. Sin distorts in order to deceive. So follow me. The serpent appeals to a good desire that was given by God in this passage. What was the desire? To be like God. We looked at this several times. God created us to be like him. The desire to be like God is not in and of itself wrong, but the serpent offers them a distorted pathway in pursuit of something good. You want this thing. You were made for this thing. Well, here's a shortcut. 
Here's an easier way to get it. I know that God said it this way, but maybe if you just did it this way. This is what sin does. It distorts in order to deceive. Did you notice in the text it said Eve thought the fruit looked good? Yeah, you can raise your hand if you want. I'll raise my own hand. You don't have to raise your hand. I know, we, I know how we are about crop participation here. But you ever looked at something and it, it seemed really good? And just shortly after that, you realize that was not good. You know what I mean? You know, or as Proverbs 14 will say, there's a way or there's a path before us or a way of life that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. You have been convinced this is, what, this is what dad needs to do. This is what papa needs to do, whatever. This is what I'm going to do. And you do it and it blows up in your face. And in retrospect, you're like, oh my, oh my. Eve thought this looked good but it brought so much pain and destruction, and we have all been there. They thought something looked good. That's out of order. They they thought, so God made a law, and in that moment, they thought breaking that law would look good. That's disorder. Something that has been declared not good by God, and then we think that that still looks good. So here's something I want you to be aware of when it comes to sin. Disorder always precedes sin and always follows sin. Disorder, chaos, something that's not in line with God's design. Disorder always precedes sin. Disorder follows sin. Sin creates chaos and chaos creates casualties. I'm going to do that one more time. Disorder always precedes sin. Sin always produces chaos. And chaos always creates casualties. Sin is a force of chaos, of distortion, of deception, of disobedience. The serpent and all of his cronies, they know how to latch on to godly desires and then whisper to us, there's a way that will work just as well for you. In fact, it's easier too. I know God said this way, but doesn't this look so much easier? Doesn't this look good? Let me try to give you a couple of examples to maybe help make this make a little bit more sense. Um, is it wrong to want to feel safe? Anybody? No. no, no. God made you to feel safe. You ever watched how poorly humans do in life when we don't feel safe emotion, emotionally, mentally, physically? It's good. It's a good godly desire. You were created to feel safe. Is it wrong to desire intimacy with another human? Oh, we're not sure about that one. No, no. You're made, created for community. I'm not just talking about romantic intimacy. I'm talking about feeling close, feeling known, feeling safe with another human. You, you were created for that. Is it wrong to want to have a sense of meaning to your life? No. So you, you all see some of the problem we have here? No, it's not wrong to have a sense of meaning or purpose in your life. But let's say something is disordered. This is what sin does. It distorts in order to deceive. You have something disordered in your life. What does that mean? You don't feel safe. That would be something disordered, out of God's design. In comes the serpent. But you were meant to feel safe. Have you tried this? And what might this be? The serpent may come in and say, you know, it's all those people that are the problem. If you didn't let anyone get close to you again, you would never be hurt again. So why don't you isolate? 
Why don't you keep all those? It's those Christians. It's those church people. It's those people out there. Why don't you just hide with me back here? Maybe you do that. And suddenly you have this new feeling called loneliness that pricks against that longing for intimacy that you were made for. But you're not safe. Again, something's disordered. You don't feel safe and you don't feel close. Well, now you were meant to feel intimate. You were meant to feel close. Maybe you start having thoughts like, why did things fall apart with your ex anyway? Maybe just give him a call. Maybe he's changed. You know, looking at that website won't hurt anybody. Nobody's got to know. You really did have a strong connection with that woman at work. I know she's not your, I know she's not your spouse, but you were made to feel close. You deserve this. Your wife isn't holding up her end of the deal. You see what I'm saying? Something gets disordered, and then in comes this voice, this parasite of sin that distorts in order to deceive us. And I'm telling you, sin whispers at you before it shouts at you. It whispers long before it shouts. And, and the whispers, the disorder, almost always argue for a scarcity that instills doubt. Scarcity is the belief that there's just not enough to go around. God's only made so much and there isn't enough. You don't have what you need because there isn't enough for you. And why is that? Well, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God was lying. Maybe I made too many mistakes. If you believe that there isn't enough to go around, if you believe that God is withholding from you, you will begin doubting the character of God himself. When, when that scarcity mindset from the serpent enters into our world, we don't look at a garden in all of its abundance. When, when sin is reigning in us, we see the one tree that we're not supposed to touch. And then we begin to question God. See the craziness of this? You have this huge garden. You can eat anything that you, anything that you want. And I'm not even sure there was something magical about this tree. I think God had one tree to remind them, this is my garden and you are my creation. You can do whatever you want. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God. I'm going to put one thing in here to remind you guys every day, this is my garden and you belong to me. Then the serpent comes in. And in this world of abundance, we stare at the one tree that we're not allowed to touch and we suddenly question the goodness of God. And when we are deceived, when we doubt, we divide. We've seen this far too often. As we've affirmed throughout this series, we were created to be like God in our, the way we relate, which the way we've described that is unity, diversity, and harmony. Pastor Stephen gave a wonderful sermon about that a few weeks ago. But what happens when you're afraid and you don't think there's enough to go around? What happens when all of a sudden there's a supply chain issue with toilet paper? What did, what did, what did we do? We bought two years worth of toilet paper. Some people were sitting on mountains of toilet paper and other people had none. Why? There's not enough to go around. So what do we do? We hunker down and we look out for number one. We stop becoming generous or generational in our thinking. Instead, we isolate and we separate. We pull away. We look out for ourselves. Unity is replaced with autonomy. In some ways, the fundamental movement of sin is away from community and into isolation and self-protection. So what has sin done? 
What happened? Did we just eat a fruit? Sin has brought about deception, doubt, and division. Into God's beautiful, ordered creation, sin has brought chaos. Into God's abundance, sin has brought scarcity. Into God's community, sin brings isolation and autonomy. This is death. This is rejection of God's design. This is a living hell. The wages of sin is death. This is what has happened to our world. Does this result in the judgment of God? This is where we love to spend our time as evangelicals. Does this result in the fate of your eternal soul being put at risk? Yes, but is that all? Is that all? No, the wages of sin is death. This can be an eternal death, but it can also be a living hell. Sin, maybe most, most fundamentally, there's so many ways to look at it. It's, it's a relational reality that brings relational death. Yes, to your relationship with God, but also to your relationships with everyone around you. Right here today, sin's parasitic work of deception, doubt, and division is at work, which means death is trying to invade all of our relationships including our relationship with God. We didn't even get to the curse this morning. Did you see that? We're just looking at what happened. What are the tactics of the serpent that we can come to recognize them? God's image bearers must recognize the presence of sin. We are not a church that thinks we will ever be able to wrap up the effects of sin in our world right now. We must acknowledge that it is a present reality And at the same time, as God's sacred image bearers, we must work to mitigate the effects of sin wherever possible. So what does that mean? What are are we supposed to do with that? First, First and foremost, our first response to the presence of sin in the world as God's sacred image bearers is this huge, and I would say hugely misunderstood word, repentance. Repentance. We need to stop. I just felt myself get a little whip of emotion there. Hang on. We have to stop thinking about repentance as simply saying, I'm sorry. It it is that, but it's not only that. I'll give you, sometimes our children are our best teachers. A couple of weeks ago, you all know what magnetiles are? You parents, if you you new parents, if you, we got little ones, if you don't have magnetiles, someone from the church get these people magnetiles. They're magnetic. They're not even blocks. Tiles? Magnetiles. (laughs) Magnetiles. <laughs> That's good marketing. Uh, there are little tiles with magnets on that you build houses. But we build whatever you want, really. My daughter, who's six, built a little house out of magnetiles. My youngest, who's two, <laughs> stomps up to this house like Godzilla. And you got to see this. He goes like this. Ha! And just kicked it down, and then stomped over it, you know, like Godzilla on Tokyo. And then my daughter starts crying. His, my son's back to my daughter, uh, and he hears her crying. He turns around, and he looks at her. And you know how two-year-olds be, how they talk. He looks at her, and he goes, I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> That's a good first move. It's a good first move to look at the person that you've hurt and to say, I'm so, so sorry. That is a good first move. But now what? This is what we had to explain to him. Get down there and help her rebuild it. 
That's repentance. It's acknowledging the wrong, it's stopping the wrong, and then it's doing differently. Repentance for image bearers of God means acknowledging our sinful way and turning from it. And here's the wonder of the gospel of Jesus for you now. Jesus, his death on the cross has secured our forgiveness before God. The legal and eternal implications of our sin are completely once and for all dealt with through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So our repentance, our turning back, our making things right must never be seen as a form of paying it back or or never about earning our way back into God's favor. Rather, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, repentance begs the question, would you rather experience life or death? Would you rather follow the way of the serpent or the way of the lamb? Would you rather be an agent of death or a generative agent of life? We turn from what we've been doing and we follow a new way. And how do you know which way is which then? Some of us are so mired in this, so mired in sin and so distorted. Just some some big questions to wrestle with. Is your way of life leading you to greater anxiety or to greater peace? Is Is it leading you into greater confidence in God's goodness and love for you? Or is it leading you to greater doubt? Is the voice you're listening to leading you into greater freedom or greater fear? Is it leading you into more love for your brother and your neighbor or greater division and isolation? To to put it real simply, if you want to know what it means to follow the way of the Lamb, Just go listen back to the last almost three months of sermons because we've been trying to lay it before you week after week after week. Not just what we do in our activities, but the kinds of humans Jesus is making us. Reject the voice of anxious deception and give yourself to Genesis moments. Reject your fearful hiding and give yourself to generosity. Reject your autonomous self-protection and build something for generations to come. Where we see deception, we bring truth. Where we see hiding, we appeal through generosity. Where we see autonomous self-protection, we invite into a bigger story. Do you see? Christians, in some ways, we rebuild the garden, but what we're, re- what we're building isn't called a garden anymore. It's called a kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Have you guys noticed over the last several months, we've been praying the Lord's Prayer every week at the end of sermons? Anybody notice that? Why? Because we want these truths, these prayers that Jesus taught us to pray, to sink deeply into our bones. We want those words to shape us to the core of who we are. We want to be compelled to answer or to work with Jesus to answer his prayer that God's kingdom come, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As God's sacred image bearers, forgiven by Jesus and empowered by his presence, we rise up against the serpent's work in our world and we say, no, not here, not now, not in this place. We don't let each other be like Adam who stand by and watch those close to us be deceived or invite death into their lives. We don't let each other get consumed by the sin and evil in the world either. 
Instead, we become a people. This is why I'm excited about our Advent series. We become a people who look for signs of the inbreaking kingdom of Jesus. That mustard seed kingdom of Jesus, where whatever that means that it's a mustard seed, it has to mean that at some point it's not obvious that it's here. But we look for it and we celebrate it when we see it. Yes, we live in a tension of a promise made and a promise filled. So how will we live in that tension? Will we doubt God's goodness and provision? Will we reject his design and put our heads in the sand? I so want us, a sojourn church, this medium church in a medium town in Indiana, I so want us to be a people of life. I so long for us to be a generative people who give our lives away for the sake of Christ's kingdom so that one day we can worship with God and see that indeed he is making all things new again. I want us wherever we go to make the world more beautiful, more alive, more abundant, more safe, more meaningful. We want it to be like the kingdom of God. And this is why each week we root ourselves in the promise of the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves, to remember that a promise has been made and a promise has been fulfilled. So I invite you to take your cup. Hold your wafer and remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. So I invite you now to behold the body of Christ given for you. Eat this, remember what he's done for you. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of juice, of wine rather. And he said, this, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. What does that mean? So long as the blood of Christ has been shed, your covenant with God is safe forever. If you're here this morning anxious or worried you've gone too far or done too much, I invite you to behold the blood of Christ shed for you and remember you are held safe with God forever. Drink and remember what he's done for you. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.